Welcome to Growing Up Fire with Jamie Coots. All right, welcome to episode five, Growing Up Fire with Jamie Coots and Ken Skull with me today. Ken, man, you're a legend in my eyes, one of my big mentors and the guy I blame for being on the fire department. <laughs> um, happy to have you in here today. Uh, really excited about this. We're going to talk a lot about fire. Uh, we're going to talk about some about your career at the airport and how that kind of impacted things at the uh, fire department. Some of the crashes we went to, some of the things we got to see. Uh, but let's start way back at the start, right? Uh, I shouldn't say way back. Sorry, I'm not trying to date you here, but yeah, it is way back. <laughs> what uh, first memory you have of wanting to be a firefighter? Well, I don't know as I ever really had the memory of wanting to be a firefighter. Uh, these things always happen because somebody you know that's already firefighting comes along and says, "Hey, how would you like to give this a try?" And you do it, and then it kind of gets in your blood, and it kind of grows from there. It's just one of those things. It's like a like some kind of a disease that you catch. So it wasn't uh, necessarily that you were playing with fire trucks when you're five years old and said, hey, I got to be a fireman. It was more of a kind of got drug into it. No, I was playing with trucks, but they weren't fire trucks. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, yours would have been gravel trucks and excavators. Yeah, exactly. right? the, the first part of your life, uh, work life. Eh? The family business. Yeah, for sure. Right on. So, uh, yeah, you moved from Fort Assiniboine to Slave Lake. You're here for a while. You you know, you get uh, your heavy-duty mechanic. You're working, and then somebody says to you, hey, you should be a firefighter. So that's exactly how it happened. So from there, I went down to the fire hall for one of their regular Tuesday practices and walked into the place and was handed. Uh, I believe we were already on the pagers by that time. So at that time, we were just you become part of the fire department. You get a pager. You're issued some gear and uh, off you went. Referring a little bit to the gear that we were given, it was, uh, I don't know if anybody's seen pictures of this, but it's an old, uh, looks like an old raincoat made out of canvas and the big metal buckles on the front kind of sort of overlap so the heat couldn't get at you. But we were given a, a helmet that looked a lot like the ones that they pass out now during fire prevention week for the kids, the plastic helmet. <laughs> it might have been a couple of mils thicker than that. But <laughs> Not much. <laughs> very light, though. Nice to wear. <laughs> Protect you from raindrops, eh? And the uh, hip wader type boots, the, the boots that come way up past where you really felt comfortable wearing them. The bad part about that was if you've ever tried to crawl around inside of a building like they always told you to do, wearing a pair of high boots and a long coat, tough. Very tough. So, yeah. Here's your three quarter length coat. Yeah, just around. Just, <laughs> it just, uh, and as far as uh, gloves, well, we, we were given uh, rubber gloves, like you'd wear it just to keep your hands dry if you're out in the, in the rain or whatever, but uh, nothing that was real fire protection. In fact, it was bad because if you had any moisture inside the glove and then it got a little warm, well, it was kind of steamy inside there. It could get uh, even worse than if you didn't have any at all. Winter time, it was cold, so you couldn't wear those. So we were given wool mitts, which to this day, I still think were amazingly good, but they were hard to work with. It kept your hands warm, but your exactly. fingers are all trapped inside. Then. Okay. A lot of people would just buy their own Green King gloves and wear those. Hey, that was... <laughs> the Green Kings. Yeah. If you can steal them from the riggers around right, town. Exactly. Here, you, could, uh, you know, it's so hard to believe that that's a thing, right? I mean, I've seen the pictures. Obviously, most of that stuff was gone by the time I came. And, you know, I think back to 30 years ago and think, 
you know, how terrible the equipment we were using. We had the old Scott 2A trunk there and uh, with the bypass and everybody to save air would go to demand pressure with the flag instead of positive pressure. And, and we thought, oh, wow, you know, this stuff is just horrible. You're talking about like no balaclava, probably even worse SCBA. Balaclava was uh, just a hard liner was basically what that amounted to. So <laughs> Keep your ears warm. <laughs> I had it determined the other day when I was thinking about this is one of the things that we've put our personal protective equipment, which we never even called it that. It was just our turnout gear or our gear or whatever. But we had two reasons we wore it. One was to keep dry and the other one was to keep warm. It wasn't to make you safe from any type of exposure. That was that was basically what it was for. So that's why we go get a hard hat liner to keep your ears warm. It was nothing to do with the fire. So honestly, like, you know, as we move through those early days of fire all the way through, you know, you think of uh, the original 1965 fire truck that they got in Slave Lake. Like, that was the legit real deal when you joined the fire department. Did they have the second truck yet? No. Um, when I first started, that was our front slide truck, the one that hauls the barbecues around now. <laughs> and uh, amazing how many people you could get on that truck. <laughs> That was before, it wasn't long after I joined that they had banned us from riding on the tailboard. We did that for probably the best part of a year when I first joined, and then they decided that wasn't safe, so they gave us belts, and you clipped onto the the hold-on bar, the grab bar on the back. So that just meant that if you did fall off, they just drug you to the fire. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> You're still belted on. <laughs> Well, you hear so many stories of that, you know, where like four guys are on the belt-on bar and then the belt-on bar uh, bolts rust off and the whole thing comes off and everyone goes. And and uh, I can remember you telling me over a few beers the odd time some of the funny stories about guys falling off and showing up at the fire later. I, I was one of those guys. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, again, it's just so strange to think about, you know, those those starting days, right? Uh, and then even before that. And, you know, in when you're in your 10 at 1 training, you're flipping through the history of SCBA and everyone's making fun of it. Really, when you go back and you think about personal protective equipment, it's not that funny. They, they put us in some terrible situations with uh, very little to protect us. And, uh, you know, we could still get the job done and we're still doing a, the thing, but it wasn't very safe for firefighters. So I agree with you. I think the PPE is way up. I think the safety is way up. And I think uh, we we're just talking before the show here about change. So, you know, what, what do you think? Change in the fire service? Oh, amazing the amount of change that, that I've seen. And I, I'm not saying just in the years I was there, but I kind of keep in touch with what's going on at the fire hall right now. And, you know, I, I don't even understand some of the the systems they're using in the processes. It's, it's amazing. You know, I think there's been a big burden on the fire service. I shouldn't say a burden, but it, one of the things that's made their change really tough is the regulatory side of it, where they have to start following occupational health and safety rules and this type of stuff. And it, it makes it harder to attract volunteers because the time commitment has to be much greater than it used to be. But so far, still working. Yeah, you know, it's keeping people safe, right? And I agree with you. The regulatory side is, I don't know, it's almost insurmountable for some volunteers now, right? Um, you used to be able to come for two hours twice a month. Now you got to come for two or three hours, four times a month. Plus you got to add some weekends. Plus they want you to do a 12-week 10-on-1 training course. At some point, it gets tough to be a volunteer firefighter. Uh, people are still doing it, but you can also see, you know, we start out this conversation with three quarter length uh, coats and, and tall boots and a hard hat that can barely stop a raindrop. 
And, you know, we get to today. I don't know where it's all going, but uh, the change, the the constant evolution of the fire service is crazy. And, and so you always hear people making fun of the fire service talking about 100 years of tradition unimpeded by change. What do you think of that? Well, I, I think there's been a lot of change. I mean, I, I think some of the, the big changes about uh, maybe the overall way that the operation is handled and everything, maybe that's a little slow to move. But I think when it comes to the innovation of of uh, equipment and procedures for doing things, I think the firefighters are very perceptible to that. I don't think they they have any problem with, with that type of change. Yeah, and, and I think it's ongoing, right? So every day there's there's really so much change that we don't even notice there's change. It's like, you know, part of our job is to just constantly adapt and change and move on with the new equipment and the new procedures and the new regulations and the new apparatus. And, and uh, you know, it's crazy. When we were doing that barbecue truck project, that was to really memorialize Larry Battenfelder, who who died just outside of town when he was on the fire department. And, and to move that project forward, you know, we joke about it being the barbecue truck now. But, I mean, his vision was to keep that alive, keep history alive. And uh, so he, he really helped with that and took us right to the starting point. After the fire, Calgary came in, fixed it all up for us. And, uh, was you know, it's awesome. It's still an awesome icon in the community. But you look at that truck compared to, you know, a truck that they got two years ago. It's, it's not even believable that the same job got done with those two trucks, right? They both had a water tank. They both had a pump. They both had a radio in them, you know? So it, it is crazy. It is safer for the firefighters. I don't think anyone can deny that. But where's it going to go, right? Like now they come out with the electric fire truck and the pumps that you run with your smartphone. And I just, I can't even yeah. imagine, right, where it's going to go. I, I remember not uh, that long ago talking to one of the firefighters that had been there for quite a few years. And uh, we were looking at the ladder truck and uh, I said, you might be able to make this thing work, but I know I could, <laughs> I could make that one over there pointing to the barbecue truck. Yeah. But this one I'm not so sure about. Yeah. And, and it's all part of that constant change and, and training and drive. Right. So it's good. It's, it's crazy, but it's good. So let's kind of switch gears here. So the good, the bad, and the ugly of firefighting, right? So, you know, think through your career, right? You had the longest career of any firefighter at, at uh, the Slave Lake Fire Department to this date. So, you know, what, what was some of the best stuff that you saw? Well, let's say the change definitely was the best, you know, getting a new truck, one that was a little more up to date and had the capacity to pump more than 500 gallons a minute was definitely one of the things. I mean, I think overall, the best thing about being a member of the fire department, as I remember, was the people that you got to meet. And it was so strange how we could go to a call, it was a a carbon monoxide call or something in a house and, oh, we'd have a a heating guy there that knew how the furnace worked. If you need an electrician, you had one of those. You had a carpenter, you had a mechanic. Pretty much everybody had a trade that they could add something to the system. And I think for sure the people were the best. And that's why I still go to the fire hall. And even though these guys are, I hate to say it, but probably the most of them are 50 years younger than I am. And yet <laughs> oh, I can still, a date on yeah, it there. <laughs> I can still meet with them. I can still sit down, have a beer with them. They come by my place. If I need help with anything, they're there for me at any time. So that's definitely one of the biggest pluses. That's the good part of it. The bad part, of course, was some of the, one the thing I hated the most, I think, was 
freezing to death out there in the cold night and the water dripping <laughs> off you. That was never any fun. And then and then the destruction that you see, you know, how it affects people's lives and, of course, the fatalities that you inevitably deal with. And that's never going to change, I don't think. You're always going to be dealing with that in the emergency services. So, But, yeah, I think that's pretty much the, the good and the bad that I see in the fire service. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, and there's... You know, you're helping someone out on their worst day, right? So you're using all the training that you that you can put together, all your knowledge and experience and applying it. But at the end of the day, it's still, you know, somebody died, somebody got hurt, somebody's house burnt down, somebody's stuff got wrecked. And, and uh, it gets to grind on you for sure. You know, the ugly part, I guess there's a million ways to look at that. For me, I always thought it was all the people pieces, you know, the different way that firefighters act and the things that... Uh, get done and said by the public and and to the public. I kind of thought that was the uglier parts of the job. I have to agree with you a bit on that, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to drag it out of him, folks. He's not biting today. (laughs) I always uh, felt that, uh, unfortunately, in most things, you're only as good as your last performance. So, you know, if you do a good thing, everybody's happy with you. If the, the one mistake you make or the one call that you didn't just do everything perfectly, that's the one that everybody wants to talk about yeah no question about it it's uh it's funny because i don't even want to talk about too many of the bad things that happened to me through my because you probably don't know about all of them and you were the boss through a lot of those so (laughs) i'm gonna wrap myself out here but one day that we're definitely aligned and and i think it was a a pretty crazy bonding day for you and i was the kern fire over in the southeast part of slave lake so why don't you run us through your memories of that well it was a structural fire residential area slave lake about nine o'clock in the morning, a weekday, I'd responded to the call with the chief. We were uptown in that area at the at, at the time. We arrived and there's a fire in the basement of a single family dwelling. The crews arrived and you arrived on scene as well. And I believe you were you'd been at home. You were off yeah, sick or something. Sick that just day. stopped yeah. in just to see what was going on, and. Uh, you know, they knocked the fire down. We had crews go into the basement. And uh, the one mistake I guess we made in hindsight was we didn't pay much attention to ventilating the upstairs. Uh, as this fire progressed and we thought we had it pretty much under control, or at least we were getting the upper hand on it, we had crews in the basement. We had an ambulance standing by. And all of a sudden, we had a, I'm going to call it a flashover because the whole upstairs of the house just kind of blew right up there's flames coming 20 30 feet out the out the roof of the you, building you and i are the only two that ever saw it so i'll i'm on your team as a flashover so it was funny because the the, the medics that were on scene they jumped into the ambulance started getting their gear ready because we figured the people inside this building are either gone or they're seriously injured there's some problems there so you grabbed a a large diameter hose off the truck and got the guy to charge it and you're fighting the fire. I went to the door and was pulling on the inch and a half that was running in the door to kind of see if these guys were going to respond. Nothing. I would have thought they would have pulled back on it, but nothing happened. Pulled some more. The hose just keeps coming. So but this time the fire chief walks around the corner of the building and I said, how many guys are in the house? And he said, none. What do you mean? They're, they're all standing on the back step. Sure enough, they had come out the back door and were not in the building at all. And as we were talking just a few minutes ago, uh, I think what happened is when they opened the back door to come outside, they let some air in there, and that's what caused the, the flashover. We tried to tell these 
the firefighters and the chief what had happened, and they didn't believe us because they never seen it. It all happened kind of behind their backs. Uh, the only thing that saved us is the local newspaper was walking up the street toward the fire, and well, as he's walking, he's just snapping pictures, and he captured the whole thing right from start to finish. So we couldn't wait to rub that in everyone's faces. <laughs> but that was, I, I still would say that was probably the worst day of my time on the fire department because for that might have been five minutes or seemed like an hour. We thought we had some, you're thinking about, oh, we got to tell these people's wives and families that, yeah, they were injured or, or died in a fire. And how is that going to go? And these things, you're way ahead of yourself, but yeah. it's things that are going on in the back of your mind. I'll never forget. It's just, uh, you'll be able to remember it too, just that look. I'm standing there with a two and a half charged hose over my head, pumping water through the front window. And at the time, if you ever thought about it, it's like, how how are you even holding on to that by yourself? Never mind above your head. And all right. So, I mean, there's no doubt that I felt like people were in there and that this water was going to cool the fire and try and save some some lives. And while I'm doing that, I'm not looking where the hose is going because it's in a big bay window, I'm looking at you and you're pulling on this hose. And I honestly still this day think that we both believe that those firefighters would all walk out attached to that hose. And and when you got to the nozzle right there, that point in time, that second, that look that we had, I know that we were both planning firefighter funerals um, without a doubt. And so that, I'm with you, that was the, the ugliest, scariest. Um, it's kind of you hate to call it a routine fire right but that's the trap you get into like it was going good we we had three crews in there and uh you know the part that we didn't know is they'd gone down to the basement felt the pressure from the fire on themselves and just went upstairs and went out the back door just dropped the hose and actually the funny part was terry tonsi once said that you were pulling on the hose from the front and so he finally just let go of it because he's like i'm not going back in there with this hose right <laughs> yeah they were kind of upset that we were pulling their hose away what are you taking our hose away from the fire <laughs> so they come around the backside, and and uh, for sure joe mcwilliams from the leader it was uh we're talking to him about it and he's like yeah i didn't really know what was happening but it was really cool and i was just like every 15 seconds i was just taking a picture with this old camera he had right and uh that that film those pictures turned out to be the greatest capture you know minus having video of it i guess of a flash over fire in a house fire i have the, those pictures still stored on my computer every one of them there and i look at them once in a while and sure uh, to, just to reassure myself that we were right and they were wrong yes exactly <laughs> i should get some of those i'll throw them up on my social and everyone can have a look at what we're talking about but like I remember there was a like a basketball sized hole in the middle of that picture window and the smoke was coming out of there in those pictures like five, six feet straight out. And then later on when the that whole window broke out and those flames came, I've never been in a flashover. You know, I've been in the chamber training and, and seen it. But uh I would say that we got a front row seat to the biggest flashover of our career there. Yeah, exactly. And and again, just super lucky no one was uh hurt. Uh turned out there the basement had burned a hole burned through the through, living room yeah. floor and the and heat was going the up to the top. Yeah. So then, like you say, all they did was open that back door and it was enough air to just get all those heated gases going and boom. Yeah. We treated it as a small uh, one room basement fire and it turned out to be much more than that. For sure. Yeah. 
Brutal, but uh, yeah, it's it's a memory, just the same. You know, so you were always busy with the fire service and you also had, you guys were running your company and you were, had a trucking company and you were a mechanic and you're doing all that stuff. And then I remember when that kind of rolled to a stop and you moved over to the airport and we're like, oh, wow, that's, that's a cool job. You'll be able to still come to the fire department all the time. So we're super pumped. But uh, that responsibility and knowledge um, kind of rolled through the and so you know I can remember plane crashes I can remember parts falling off planes I can remember helicopter crashes and and uh, having to deal with all that stuff and it's funny because until you went to the airport I don't remember a time in the fire service where we even talked about that threat helicopters water bombers were a block away at the fire hall and we never really ever talked about it I think once I was here we took took the the risk a lot more serious so we kind of became familiar with the airport. We talked about what what we would do if certain things happened and do scenarios and whatnot. But there were a couple of, of aircraft incidents prior to my coming over here. One was a short, landed short of the runway on the uh, grass to the east end. And there were some injuries in that one. There was another one uh, just across Highway 88. A small aircraft landed in there short of the runway. And then, of course, after I was here, we had the, the medevac plane that landed on the lake oh, in the wintertime on the ice. I forgot about that, yeah. When I think back of it, we've had probably eight or ten aircraft-related accidents right on or within the vicinity of the airport. And it's when I was here, I didn't think it was a big deal. We didn't have that many incidents. But when you think of how many I attended, there was quite a few. Yeah, you, you start talking about them, right? I mean, right. there's the bomber the day Jeffrey Dupree yeah, went missing exactly. and it crashed in just off the airport. But uh, yeah, and the medevac plane, I forgot about that. That was just, uh, they just landed early there out in the middle of the frozen lake. I got to say that was uh, was lucky on their part, the way it all turned out, but it was also a very good uh, response from the fire service. Within anybody who knows anything about the airport lighting the pilots turn the lighting on with the radio and uh, they stay on for 15 minutes and then they, they shut off. We had the guys on the scene at the airport before the runway lights went off. And this meant that they had to crash land on the ice, contact their dispatch who paged out a fire crew at what time would that have been? One in the morning or, yeah, midnight or something? middle of the night for sure. And they were here at the airport within 50 minutes of them turning the lights on, not of crashing. That was when they were making their approach. Yeah. So that that's a pretty amazing response. Had the first guys back on shore within probably half an hour. I was uh, one of the lucky ones. I got to go out in the first batch of skidoos that went out to the uh, crash site. And I remember thinking, like, this is a big lake, right? It's 88 kilometers long. It's 15 wide. How are we going to? And all of a sudden, you see this flare go up in the air. We're like, oh, wow. Who would have thought of that? That's awesome. We'll just, it was like TV, right? I was still a pretty young guy then, and we got to the plane, and and it's uh you know there's just a lake aviation fuel all around us, and we're like, hey, could you guys stop shooting flares? That might be a good start to this. <laughs> and uh, we loaded up the patients, and and we had to stay. Someone had to stay because there wasn't enough room for us all to go back. So I stayed with the two pilots and the medic, and we're sitting inside the black cockpit. And as all the skidoo's left, of course, it's just black, right? And we're sitting in the back passenger compartment of the plane and and uh, flicked my flashlight on. And I was like, 
anybody want to talk about this? <laughs> and I thought it was funny. I thought I was being a funny guy. But uh, I will tell you that that was the longest, darkest uh, 15 minutes of my life while we waited for those skidoos to come back and, and pick us up. And we all took different skidoos out of there, I can tell you. But uh, yeah, it was crazy. And then the next day, you guys had it plowed out and we're picking up the Move plane. the plane off, yes. Yeah, and uh, I guess one of the the other crazy ones that I'll recall is just before I left the airport and retired, uh, Convair 580 air tanker departing Slave Lake, and as he rotated and the nose come off the ground, one of the front tires fell off just blew. <laughs> and was bouncing down the runway 20 feet in the air and landed out in the lake someplace. Well, we weren't sure where it had went, so we spent a half a day looking for it. And uh, a couple of days later, some kids that were wading around in the lake found this thing in the water, and we fished it out and took it back to the to Con Air so they could put it back on their airplane. Wow. That's <laughs> just, yeah, and that's just crazy to think. But honestly, probably stuff like that happens, right? I mean, there's a million moving parts, and you don't want it to happen. You hope it doesn't. And he had another tire still on the on the plane so he could land but it's still scary stuff and that's one of those cases where the the aircraft's got to come back and land at some point so we had time to discuss this fairly thoroughly with the uh, people at the forest service and my suggestion was go somewhere else don't land here yeah go to edmonton and that's exactly what they did the fire department we were fully uh on board with that plan (laughs) go to edmonton where they have full-time fire rescue crash services and hospitals and exactly go close to the where the all the good good equipment is i gotta say one of my craziest ones had to be that day that the the helicopter that was training crashed yes i was i was in uh, arizona when that happened but i didn't i didn't hear about it before most people did yeah it was was crazy we're just down at the fire hall and and uh they called us over and we came and because of you we had this great procedure we knew to meet the i think paramedics and we're talking to the aircraft and we're going onto the taxiway and there's these two guys huddled over walking down the the road and the taxiway and so we pull up and we're like what you guys i guess there was a crash out here do you know where then they're like they look up and they're just covered in blood and they're like oh okay get in right <laughs> And uh, it just happened to be one of those days, no ambulances available. It's going to be 45 minutes and, you know, on and on. And this guy's gushing blood from his whole face onto the floor mat of my truck and all over the seats. And and so uh, we grab another firefighter and we start trying to patch these guys up. And finally, it's decided we'll just drive them over to the hospital. And uh, we get there and I stuck with the guy that had the most gashes and bleeding. And, and uh, we're watching everyone work on him and they kind of get them patched up and they're just going to line up some x-rays and stuff and I was like, hey, is there anyone you want me to call? Like, you want me to call your wife? Or, And he's like, oh, God, no. We won't phone her until we know I'm going to be okay. You know how mad <laughs> she's going to be? And I said, well, I think you're going to be okay. But And so he said, no, no, I'll I'll phone her later when it's all when I'm all stitched up and I got some stats for her and stuff. And so that was a crazy one for me, just, you know, dealing with that and, and all the fallout. Another thing that we were talking about with the airport was the, the Chisholm fire early 2000s there. And uh, I can I have this video still to this day, you and I driving along the, the taxiway and then the runway and uh, 58 helicopters, 19 water bombers on this, I think, what was it 4,000 foot runway at that time? Uh, five, five, just five, over 5,000 5, yeah. foot runway. And they're everywhere you looked. There was a plane or a helicopter. They were parked all over. And I don't know all the names and kinds, but there was three sky cranes. There was a Chinook. There was that that weird Russian one with the... Yeah, the cam-off. The cam-off. And uh, you, you're naming them all off to me and telling me every kind. I'm just filming it with my video camera. And uh, I'm just so amazed. And when every time you listen to the tape, you're just like, 
it's kind of like you're bored. It's just another day at work, right? There's this and there's that. But how many aircraft movements there are around here during fire season and and uh, how often that uh, something could happen, but rarely, rarely does is a... Yeah, it's kind of amazing because most airports that are as busy as this will get during a, a fire, a major fire, have uh, air traffic control. So they're, they're controlled in some way. Uh, this one is operated off an air traffic frequency. So the aircraft kind of look after themselves. So they... They broadcast their position and their intentions. And these guys are very good at following the procedure, so they follow the path. And you can have six, seven, eight, ten aircraft in the approach at one time. And they all seem to sort things out and and uh, get themselves on the ground safely. And I know during the, the 2011 fire, I was talking to the Edmonton Flight Information Center people, and they asked about you know, how many uh, movements we were having in a day. And when I told him, he said, oh, you're busier than Edmonton International. You know, jokingly, I'm sure we weren't, but. <laughs> I I don't know, like in 2016 at the Fort Mac fire, uh, one of the stats that got, I think it was the third day of the fire after it ran into the city was they had more aircraft movements than Pearson International that day. So you can imagine, and I mean, it was, I mean, it was aluminum overcast there, right? There was helicopters and bombers everywhere, but uh Still cool to think that that all kind of gets sorted out by a few dispatchers and the planes themselves right. and, and the operations people. So you got to give a kudos to the pilots and to the forestry people that sort that mess out because it really could be a disaster. Because every day, like we drive down there at night, there's 58 helicopters, 19 water bombers. The next morning, there was none, right? So they're all flying. They're out the same somewhere fire. in the vicinity of that fire doing that work. You know, it's insane. I, yep. I think that uh, so many fire departments cover these small airports and maybe even bigger airports and they don't give it much consideration so you know to me i guess it's just a public safety announcement for fire departments is you know check in with your airport understand what's going on and and we didn't really until you came over here and so that was a great piece that we added to the fire department and that knowledge and it, and it paid off in spades over the years um, to be able to help and to to be able to know what's going on and understand exactly all right. So then uh, that time comes in everyone's career where you decide it's time to retire from the fire department. What was that like? Well, as you know, I'm not one of these guys who just sticks around to add years to my years of service. When I look at it and say, I think I've done all the good I can do here. There's people that can step in here and probably move this to a different level. Then I'm the one that wants to step out of the way and say, yeah, time is up. So that's kind of what I did. I was working on the standard operating procedures and the policies and whatnot. And I remember going into the chief and saying, as soon as I'm finished these, I'm going to retire. And uh, he thought I was retiring from the airport. And <laughs> he couldn't understand nobody, yeah, why. Nobody thought the fire department. <laughs> but uh, no, I finished those up. And then I think it was uh, picked the end of the year, December 31st. The, to shut her down and the first week or two you kind of uh you miss it but i think after that you get used to the fact it's just like retirement in general it's like hey this is not so bad you know don't have to get up in the middle of the night i would hear sirens at night and i would perk up and then i would just kind of smile and <laughs> tuck myself back under the covers yeah, and, giggle a bit yeah, yeah. <laughs> cold outside and now here i am nice and warm but yeah it, you know it's a tough decision but still i think like i say that was you have to look at it from, are you doing the best that 
can be done or is there somebody that can move up there and take this over and yeah it was part of the mentorship that i mean it's ongoing to this day how you still mentor me on things and and when i quit it was the same sort of idea right that's i i did all that i could do and now someone else has to take it over and and i did i just walked away and and uh it was great. It was a great move for me, and and the fire service keeps running because it always does, right? So, a lot of people over the years could have learned a lesson about that, right? When it's time to go, you should go. Yeah, exactly. You shouldn't be have to be asked to leave. You shouldn't have to be forced to leave. It shouldn't be a fight. And I had spent uh, what probably ten years there with only one arm because I left one at the airport, as anybody knows Yikes, me knows yeah. about. But I remember one of the firefighters saying to me i was planning on leaving when that happened i was like well you can't do this but there again that group of people over there said oh no 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 we'll do whatever it takes we'll hook you up with headsets and everything and one comment was well you're a deputy chief you just stand around with your hands in your pockets anyway so now you'll only need one pocket (laughs) i didn't think that was true but (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't i hope i didn't say that (laughs) No, I mean, you did some incredible work there. We we talk every day about, uh, you know, guidelines and procedures and, and all of that stuff. I mean, you helped bring that in. You helped with all that change for over all those years, uh, and, and it was great. And uh, you were kind of like that quiet, the godfather type guy, you know, you're, you're just uh, super respected. Everybody wanted your opinion. And Do you remember uh, be, me being referred to as the conscience? No, but it <laughs> makes a lot of sense. When uh, you guys would be planning on something, uh, the ladder truck was one. If you remember, I was like, I don't know if we need a ladder truck. And you guys were saying, oh, you're, you're the, our conscience. Eh? You're like, stop and think about this. True story. Yeah. The, maybe we were yeah. the devil on one shoulder yeah. and you were the angel on the other. Right? But, uh, you know, I was like, oh, ladder truck, that's a lot of money. Do we really need that? And uh, then I remember... After I'd retired, the fire was coming into town in 2011, and I looked over by the hospital, and the ladder truck is there keeping the hospital from burning it down. I thought, hmm, that's a pretty good deal. <laughs> Should have had well, one those of those guys years are ago. Smart. <laughs> 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 no, it happens, and and I think that's good. It's good to have that that piece. You know, the I still see the young firefighters, uh, you know, that are here today, Logan and Ryan, and some of the guys at the fire department. You know, those big, tricky moves, you're still the guy that they phone up or, or wait to stop in at the fire hall and say, hey, what do you think of this? Or how's that going? And and so to me, that's huge. Uh, once you retired, that that was a tough piece, right? I mean, obviously, you know, you think, how are you going to move on? This guy was here for 30 years. And how do you move on without, you figure it out. But to your credit, you never left us in the lurch. You, you were always available. You never fully left. You know, if we had to ask you your opinion, you were there for that. If it was just to have a coffee or kind of check in on us, you were always there. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about that, right? Like that mentorship piece and, and what it means to the firefighters and what it means when you're a retired firefighter to still have that piece, right? That you don't lose that family. It just changes the dynamic. So, you know, your visits now when you go to the fire hall, what are those like? Oh, great. I mean, during the COVID thing, it was like, stay out of there. And uh, I think if I went down there and knocked on the door right now, they'd probably let me in. They might make me go stand in the corner. But, <laughs> you know, they, they don't, they always treat you good. You, I remember going there for countless lunches. And uh, yeah, it's uh, another aspect of it is uh, I can call them, like I was saying, and anytime and I need help to lift something or move something or 
whatever and they'll be there for me that's just the way firefighters are yeah it's just that mutual respect that's still built over the years and it's funny because sometimes i go down there and they'll be out of practice and they're talking and and uh, people that don't even they never even worked with you and they still talk with this respect right it's kind of like they're talking about this this icon this idol and and that's cool that's how it should be i think it has to do with my wife's cookies well certainly doesn't hurt (laughs) certainly doesn't hurt (laughs) I think it doesn't hurt. Also, you know, like uh, the locker project, right? So let's talk about that for a minute. That kind of started off. We got a new fire hall and we were, you know, just going back and forth, you and I, about how do we remember these firefighters? So we had a couple of captains and a firefighter that died while they were on the fire department, not in the line of duty, but while they were on the fire department. And so uh, you and I went back and forth. So kind of maybe talk about that project a little bit. Yeah, we... uh built a couple of uh, lockers that uh, we put their their gear in it and uh, dressed this up a little bit with glass and uh, all lit up and very uh, nice uh, memory for those guys. Yeah, I, th- that's another thing I look at quite often when I'm in there is take a walk around and see how all that's doing. And they seem to be maintaining it quite well. And yeah, I'm sure their their families are quite proud of that. And I was real happy to have been able to help out by building it. Yeah, and it's kind of crazy. I was down there having lunch with the guys maybe a couple months ago, and and I was uh, looking at a list of firefighters, and there's like six firefighters that even worked with any of those left, and yet that's still a really iconic piece in the fire department, and that you know everybody talks about those lockers, and everybody could tell you the story from a brand new rookie. You know, that's never, never even met those guys or knows anything about them all the way to the ones that did. And they can all tell you the story why it's there. They can all tell you that uh, Ken and Pierre built those lockers. And, and, uh, it's pretty awesome when you think about it, right? And that's that history is alive and, and well at the Lester Slave Regional Fire Service. It, it was a huge job to get that done. But, uh, so thanks for that. And then I think just, you know, all the projects, you're a carpenter. You're, <laughs> there's no doubt sort about of that. Sort of a carpenter. <laughs> no, you're a carpenter. <laughs> Anyone that follows my social knows that you're a carpenter. <laughs> you built Case in his bunk bed. So everyone everyone knows that I could never do that, Ken. But another fun one for us was the double stack training center inside the, the fire hall. And I think, again, that's one of those ideas that uh, I had when I was still working there full time. And and I called you and I called Bruce Turnbull and I called a few of my carpenter buddies and said, am I crazy here or could this work? And one of my fondest memories of the whole project was the day that you and I and, and Bruce and the, all the kids, we call them, the young guys from the fire hall. Come down and help kinda, out. Yeah, we put that pitched roof on and, and did a bunch of stuff. And, you know, it was to me, there's just multiple generations of firefighters. Everybody's there just to make it better. I don't know. What do you think of those things? Yeah, that, those are the kind of things that bring you together. And as long as you you take part in some of their work projects or whatever, help them out a little bit, they'll be there for you as well. And I mean, they've done so much for me that I can't uh, could never refuse to uh, help them out whenever they needed it. And I'm sure I make that quite plain to them whenever I'm talking to them. Hey, if you ever need anything, just give me a call. Well, so, I mean, even the training center. Right. We'd call you up at the airport, say, hey, could you bring your loader over? And you never once asked why or you just jumped in the loader and drove yeah. over there. And that was a fun time. Fun yeah. Yeah. We moved moving. stuff. It's like moving a rig. I can remember the day I asked you if you could go load up three pieces of CN track for me. And uh, 
you're like, well, yeah, I don't know how I could do that, but we'll let's just do it. We'll figure it out. And and uh, there we are, you know, out in the middle of nowhere, loading up these sections of track with the airport loader and stuff. And it was, uh, it's all good stuff, fun stuff. Uh, it's what keeps the fire department rolling and, and together. The training uh, center has been, a, it's, it's amazing what can be done there. And the, like the future, that is nothing but, but great. Yeah, it's still fun to go down there and watch watch people do their thing there, and it's uh, even growing a lot since I left, and and uh, the ideas never stop. I think maybe that's part of that change culture, right? That uh, firefighters just let's try this, let's try this. That's right. Yeah, it didn't work. Let's alter that. The training center is fun because it's all steel, so you could just change whatever you wanted. <laughs> it's also uh, good to see that it's used by more than just the Slave Lake fire service guys it's been used by people from all over the province basically yeah for sure well i think the highlight for me and you were down there then was that cvfsa conference yes, right? exactly you know through over 300 firefighters from across the country and everybody's having a good time and packed in that fire hall and it's uh we'd never seen anything like that before so all right this is your last chance this is your world famous premiere on growing up fire you got anything else that you want to well very happy that you give me the opportunity to work with this, and uh, now I'm speechless. You see, <laughs> that, that, that happens. <laughs> I've wrapped up my career. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I mean, to, to me, like I'll just go back to Kaysen's uh, fire truck bunk bed that we built. That innovation, that thoughtfulness, that right. It's not just that you're a great carpenter and you can put this stuff together, and that you have the greatest shop on the planet and tools, but it's the uh, you know, I would go away for a day and you'd say, I built a water cannon for the front. And, you know, I'd go away for another day and you'd come back. And it's like, well, the dash has to stick out like a real vehicle. And, you know, and then the radio. And the... so although there was a, a lot of people that helped us with different parts of that, you know, Sylvia with the painting and, and Kirsten. And but at the end of the day, it was just fun to have those innovative, change driven. Right. How will this kid play with it? And when he plays with it you can actually see all that craftsmanship yeah. worked out. So from me, from our family, from Kaysen, of course, uh, thanks for that. And and uh, we'll just keep those projects rolling. Still one of the most amazing things out of that whole project is when I come up with the uh, water monitor on the front of the truck there. And how I, when I look at it, it was like, that looks exactly like a real one. Yeah. It was made out of a couple of pieces of sewer pipe. <laughs> 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 the firefighter way right just you have an idea and you make it work and i laughed because it had all the locks and the pins and the swivels and the <laughs> and uh like it's just like a little mini version of a of the real nozzle off the truck so it's amazing surprise and he plays with it every day so okay well that's growing up fire episode five thanks ken for coming and thanks for having me Thanks for listening to Growing Up Fire today. Follow me on Instagram at Chief Coots to comment or send questions. We appreciate your support.